Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. This time, ice ivory, a mammoth crime you've probably never heard of. There was a massive difference looking at the sort of money that a tusk hunter could get from exhuming with high-pressure water hoses a tusk from the permafrost versus the sort of money that that tusk hunter would get if he waited around for the frost to melt to drag a piece out of the permafrost that was on show, so legal, in other words. Tens of fold difference. That's Dr Caroline Cox, Senior Lecturer at Portsmouth Law School. And this is Dr Luke Hauser, a researcher at the University of Portsmouth, combining paleontology and criminology to be possibly the world's first and only geocriminologist. It is a lucrative trade. If you're having to feed your children, fuel, everything else, okay, you might be breaking the law, but there's a good chance you'll get away with it. You can put your kids through education if there's any medical problems. Not a problem because you've got the money to do it. In this episode, we're going to be hearing about the ivory frozen in the permafrost of Siberia. How Caroline's work with elephants led to her involvement in the 2018 UK Ivory Act and how the excavation of these ancient mammoth tusks is causing irreversible damage to the environment and might even harm today's elephants. Let's start with Luke, arguably the world's only geocriminologist. And it's his unique academic journey that has earned him this job title. My background is paleontology. And that's what my training's in. However, criminology, we're interested in the, the who, the why, the when, these sort of questions and actually applying them to geological problems, whether that be wildlife or economic. This sort of then bore the fact that actually I'm approaching geology from a criminologist standpoint. So geocriminology seemed to be a good fit. It doesn't seem to be something that's been coined by anybody else. So yeah, geocriminology seems to fit and the way we investigate these problems, be them fossils, whether it's the fossil trade or large scale mining operations, the ethical implications, the criminality. For example, we all have smartphones in our pockets that people listening right now might even be listening to this on a smart device that contains gold. For example, Britain it imports a third of its gold from Brazil. And Brazil and other places in South America have huge problems with illegal gold mining, which is damaging the rainforest. But the thing with gold is once it's taken from the source, melted down and then sold on the wider market, you can no longer chemically trace that gold to where its original source was. So legal gold chemically looks the same as illegal gold. So it would be impossible for you to find. So we're probably realistically all walking around with illegal gold in our pockets. And it's those sort of big geological, criminological implications that geocriminology hopes to solve. It won't surprise you to hear that gold has been a desired object for thousands of years. But ivory has a similar history. Whether precious metals, elephant tusks or even fossils, Caroline thinks it's in our DNA to chase after precious things. Ivory was used by the Greeks and the Romans. In fact, the Chinese actually hunted their native elephant to extinction for want of its ivory. So this has been around for a long, long time. It's 
became really popular and important as a means to show your wealth and your power. And in fact, in Southeast Asia, it's still given as a gift to a bride and groom at their wedding to wish them luck, wealth, happiness. So it has really strong cultural links to people. We wish to desire things that give us power and wealth. And that might be an elephant tusk. It might be a dinosaur. Caroline helped start the Ivory Project in 2016 after discovering how much illegal ivory was being sold in the UK by exploiting the imperfect trade regulations that were in play at the time. That research led to a major report and ultimately the Ivory Act of 2018. So, with industry regulation in place, you might think that's where the story ends. But the desire for ivory continues from a surprising source. The main way that they're basically filling this gap is mammoth ivory. So you'll have websites that will talk about, of all things, restoring antiques. And they'll talk about, we can't use elephant ivory anymore because of the restrictions. But luckily, there's a helpful alternative, and it's called mammoth ivory. And this is mostly coming from Siberia, where there are large tracts of permafrost, where mammoths used to live. And basically, they are extracting this material using all manner of techniques. So legally, you're allowed to extract it using hammers, picks, that sort of thing, as long as it's on the surface. So it's been exposed by the gentle melting of permafrost over decades. The reality is people are quite impatient and they want a payday. So what they tend to do is use high pressure water hoses to blast away the permafrost to extract the tusks rapidly, which leads to various environmental damages, as well as loss to science of other material, because these animals weren't dying in isolation around nothing else, as it were. Other animals were also dying in the same area, and their bones and remains are also washed out. So, 400,000 years ago, a sick or elderly mammoth tripped into a stretch of water, sank into the sediment, and remained in the frozen permafrost, only to be dug up for its perfectly preserved ivory many centuries later. And when it comes to the quality of ancient tusks, the so-called grading of ivory, nature's deep freeze makes a big difference, as Caroline points out. Do you know, this weekend, I cooked fish that I found in the bottom of the freezer. That's what it's like. You get it out of the freezer and it's like you bought it yesterday. That's what Luke's talking about with mammoth ivory. And it is in such good condition. It's like the mammoth died last week. It's in prime condition, and we call that grade A mammoth ivory. Just across the water from Portsmouth, Caroline's colleagues on the Isle of Wight have found a piece of mammoth ivory, but not in nearly as good a state as one found in the Siberian permafrost. That does not look like the sort of ivory we're talking about. It looked like a bit of old tree trunk. It did not look like a piece of ivory. Sorry to our colleagues on the Isle of Wight. So there's a big difference between the grading and it's all about how the item has decayed and disintegrated over time and where, importantly, that's happened. Thanks to Caroline's work, trading in new elephant ivory is illegal in the UK. But thinking back to Luke's example of melted down gold, how easy is it to identify whether a piece of grade A ivory comes from an elephant or a deep frozen mammoth? It's hard enough for somebody who doesn't 
understand what they're looking for, to tell the difference between, say, a piece of elephant ivory and a piece of bone. So that's hard enough. Two completely different animals. When you're talking about the difference between a piece of elephant ivory and a piece of grade A mammoth ivory, it's really difficult. The only way you can really appreciate the difference between them is looking at something called the Schrager lines. If you have a cut through of the piece of ivory, you can see this cross hatching lines through the piece of ivory. And the angle of the lines is different between elephant and mammoth. And that is the only way you can tell the difference. So if the piece of ivory you're looking at has come from a piece that doesn't have Schrager lines in it, there is no way to tell the difference. Really easy to pass one thing off as another. Huge problem. It's unlikely that you've ever gone online to find ivory to buy. But, and we're not suggesting that the websites are knowingly doing anything improper, it's surprising how easy it is to find, despite all the rules and restrictions. Oh, and Caroline's tongue is firmly in cheek here. Online auction platforms are certainly a great place to buy ivory. Facebook Marketplace, that kind of thing, it's shocked me what actually goes on on these online marketplaces. And because it's legal to sell ivory on eBay, the seller just flags it as something different. So you'll never see ivory for sale, but you will see things like antique bovine bone, that kind of thing. So they'll use different words and they'll back these different words up with fantastic photographs which show the Schrager lines really, really clearly. So, you know, this isn't a bit of bone at all. That's how you do it. Even if the risk of present day elephant tusk trading doesn't concern you, it's worth considering the environmental impact of ice ivory. For starters, the permafrost is melting to reveal these ancient beasts as a direct result of climate change. But some of the excavation techniques create even more problems in the atmosphere. These areas of permafrost, as well as locking up amazing fossils like the mammoths, uh, fossils is a strong word because we're talking about animals that are not only have exquisite tusks preserved, but they have hair, flesh. We can even look at the blood proteins of mammoth and work out that they were essentially capable of surviving quite happily in minus 50 degrees temperature because they were wandering around with antifreeze in there, essentially in their blood. They were that well adapted to living in cold climates. So the key thing there is that this area is now warming up. As these areas warm up, more permafrost melts. That reveals more tusks. As more tusks become revealed, hunters see the tusks and expose them using high pressure water hoses. That melts more of the permafrost. That releases more methane. So when I say about it not just locks up fossils, it locks up gases. In fact, as of, I think, 2009, there was an estimate of 1,600 gigatons of greenhouse gases. Now, to put that into perspective, that's the top five most polluting countries as of 2019 put together in a year, locked up currently in permafrost across the Northern Hemisphere, and particular Siberia. And these gases include things like methane, and we've got to do everything we can to stop climate change. But I think there needs to be the realisation that Climate change isn't something that can just be switched off. So if we talk about these tusk hunters, they're blasting away the permafrost. They release, let's say, 100 tonnes of methane into the atmosphere. 
that 100 tons will still persist in the atmosphere for 12 years before it's dissipated, damaging the atmosphere all along. And sadly, to bring it full circle, climate change is damaging for our modern-day mammoth relatives. In the 1930s, there was something like 10 million elephants roaming across the range states of Africa, an incredible number. Today, there's something like 400,000 tops. What that means in reality is that this species has undergone genetic bottlenecking. And that's the term in biology we say when a species has had its numbers reduced so much that it gets to a point where it can survive, but you can see in its genetic history that this great diversity of genetic material has shrunk to a very small number. The species can still persist, but what that does mean is any species that or potentially undergoes genetic bottlenecking is less resistant to disease, is less resistant to climate change, because it's that genetic diversity. You might have an individual in a herd, for example, of elephant that is just slightly more drought resistant than some of the other members of the herd. It will persist in drought conditions and pass those genes on to the next generation. The more we cut back on the numbers of species, the less resistant they are to changing climate, changing disease levels. And we know in Asian elephants, for example, in captivity, that disease is a big issue. Chester Zoo, for example, has lost many elephants to this elephant virus, for example. And I think in part that's probably due to the fact that these genetics are becoming smaller and smaller. That being said, with the increased climate change, of course, less resistance, it means that even if we were to do everything that Caroline wanted to protect the elephant, but we didn't do anything to stop the exploitation of mammoth tusks in Siberia and we carry on doing it and add to the climate change, we'll still lose the elephant. Luke isn't blaming the individuals digging up ice ivory, though. Someone comes to your village and says, I'll pay you £27,000 now for that tusk. They might have a pair. So that's a huge amount of money. Because bear in mind, we're talking about these people breaking the law, but they're doing so because they're desperate. It's not necessarily quite the word, but it is a lucrative trade. If you're having to feed your children, medicine, fuel, everything else, just survive off $500 a year and you can go out, okay, you might be breaking the law, but there's a good chance you'll get away with it. They use combat netting to hide their encampments. It's a huge, vast area that's very hard to police at the best of times, even with resources that they do have. You can put your kids through education. You can feed yourself if there's any medical problems. Not a problem because you've got the money to do it. So we have to understand the human factors. The UK has definitely taken a lead with the ivory trade. And the good news is that many other countries are following suit. Globally, the Ivory Act has enabled other countries to have similar conversations. So certainly Australia is looking at something very similar to our Ivory Act, which would be an incredible thing. America's always going to be a little bit more difficult because of its federalism. But certain states have now banned the sale of antique ivory. China has effectively closed its ivory markets. I'm not sure how successful it's been, but it has. So globally, steps have been taken. But what we haven't done up until now is realised that there is this other medium out there, very, very similar to elephant ivory, which is being exploited just as badly as elephants were. As Luke said, it's not just about the elephant, it's about the wider 
global warming issues that come with extraction of mammoth ivory from permafrost. The love and appreciation of the elephant is spread worldwide, but all emotions aside, and we like asking the occasional controversial question on Life Solved, would it really matter if elephants went the way of the mammoth? The reason that the savannah in Africa is the savannah is in many ways partly down to the savannah or bush elephant. And that's because they have a behavioural quirk, which is they really don't like acacia trees growing because although they'll eat acacia trees, both the bark and the leaves, generally what they want are grasses and they're grazing animals. So they routinely use their large bodies and tusks, funny enough, to push down trees and that promotes the growth of other plants, grasses, etc., which in turn supports other species. So let's just say hypothetically we lose the elephant from southern africa to maintain that savannah we would then need to push down the trees ourselves but there's also the economic factor the human factor and it's important when we talk about this topic that we don't get lost in the plight of the animal which is important of course but also the human factor in the range states botswana south africa zambia etc they rely on ecotourism it brings in a huge amount of money. So if you imagine going on safari to see the big five, that would have to be the big four. And for a lot of people, elephants is the big draw. So all of a sudden you've lost one of those animals. So as much as the animal is worth so much in terms of its tusks on the Asian market, for example, alive, they are worth more money by far because they will keep making money for those states. So yeah, they're hugely important animal. So often on Life Solved, we explore a subject only to discover its connections. Without legislation, the trade in elephant ivory might be less than ethical. But without the trade in elephant ivory, the desire for a replacement has resulted in mammoths being dug up from their millennia-old slumber. Without poverty, communities might not feel forced to dig tusks out of the permafrost. But by doing so, they risk releasing gases that have remained locked in ice for centuries worsening the climate crisis and putting today's generation of elephants at risk as a result. Caroline has proved that research, lobbying and government action can change the world for the better. Perhaps the next step is to address the numerous challenges that ice ivory poses to the world. We'd like to see mammoth added to the Ivory Act along with the other species of living animals that also have tusks. We don't often think of them, but they're mostly marine animals. So if you think about the narwhal with the marvellous twisty little horn, they're not currently covered. So there are lots of different animals. Whales, similarly, the whale tooth. We'd like to see all of that covered. It isn't at the moment, but the government is consulting on extending the number of animals that are covered. So we do have hope. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday and we'll be attempting to work out how we'd cope in a fictional zombie apocalypse, learning lots about the human mind in the real world and exploring the odd TV thriller along the way. Night of the Living Dead, George Romero. 
kind of sets the the blueprint for basically how we treat zombies now, which is I think is really cool. It still stands up, and even now I watched it the other day as, as you know, research. That's the coolest kind of research you can ever do is watching a bunch of zombie films. Join us if you dare. 